main podcast is a free media source with a mission to provide better transparency in the market to connoisseurs, medical patients, recreational users, store owners, growers, extractors, and everyone in between. This is made possible through generous support from our sponsors who cover all corners of the great state of Maine. Special thank you goes out to Treeline Cannabis, Planet Tim, Watered Roots, Rugged Roots, The Head of Yeti, Tastefully Baked, Cure Cannabis, The Shack 420, Humble Family Farms, Canamelts, Salty Cultivation, The North Fire, Highbrow, Team Green, Seaworks & Co., Bade Space, Zero Gravity Extracts, Wisely Cannabis, and Stoner & Co. For more information on how you can support those who support us, please visit our website, www.mainpodcast.com, and click our Sponsors tab. What type of lab were you were you involved with labs before um, Nova Analytics? Yeah, so I come from an industry um, medical, yeah. um, urine toxicology, blood, oral fluids. So we did like drug testing, also um, some pharmaceutical development works. So we looked at um, pharmaceutical formulations and the compounds that they had in them. Um, what's interesting is myself, my business partners, we came from an industry that was very highly regulated. From the FDA, multiple state organizations, national organizations. And quite frankly, there's a good reason for that is that the results that we were putting out at the end of the day, they were wrong, could potentially be the difference between a person getting the correct medication for them, mm. could be the difference between getting a right or wrong diagnosis, and in worst case scenario, could actually lead to death if it's wrong. Mm. So there's a reason why it's so highly regulated is because the answer needs to be right and there needs to be a lot of quality control checks along the way. That's something that um, when we were looking at the cannabis industry and said, yeah, that's really what we want to do is we wanted to bring that eye for quality and correctness to this space because, quite frankly, we found that it was lacking. Um, we were out west in a few laboratories helping people and doing some other things, and they needed that help, and we realized that we could do it better ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we were excited to do that, so here we are. <laughs> Does it feel like it's been... You were telling me the story before we got on mic that um, that you had approached Dan because Dan had some experience out in Colorado prior to what in labs or something else as well too, um, or was it predominantly lab time? Yeah, they were all cannabis testing labs. Yep. They were all cannabis testing labs. Yep. Was that your first introduction to getting into labs, or what? What was what was it before? Uh, I had a brief stint. So, I mean, after I got my master's degree, I just packed everything up and moved out to Colorado. And um, my first job was in an environmental lab. I was testing, you know, mining effluent water um, for contamination, um, you know, dirt, soil, uh, not super exciting. Mm -hmm. So I got an opportunity to work in a cannabis lab and I was like, this seems way more interesting. You know, there's not a whole lot we know about cannabis. So I was excited to do some research and um, try to figure some stuff out. So that's kind of where I got my foot in the door. <clears throat> and just to kind of add to, to what Chris said, I think that, you know, when we talk about good and bad players in the cannabis industry, we like to leave labs out of that conversation. But um, I've seen what kind of happens at some of these other labs. I've seen the lack of quality. I've seen, you know, corners get cut. A big reason why I joined Chris and his business partners is because they, they do care um, you know, deeply about the final result. They want to raise the bar um, for the science and the cannabis industry, and I wanted to be a part of that. Did Am I right in thinking California had a problem with that uh, years ago, or maybe perhaps still, uh, and maybe this is hearsay, maybe not, but I remember hearing stories uh, from, from a few different sources saying, like, um, if you fail the test, uh, you can always pay to have another one. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's uh, very true. And all I mean, your issues are solved. I think so. one of my favorite stories, <laughs> favorite because you've heard that ridiculous. Then, right? <laughs> there was a lab that went to be inspected in Washington, and the inspectors show up, and it was a completely empty facility. Somehow they were reporting results. They were just getting paid to report fraudulent results. I mean, that's an extreme case, but yep. yeah, uh, lab shopping, uh, shopping around, finding the best number and things, and you know that's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that a lot of uh, variables that go into testing. Sampling is one of the biggest ones. Um, 
this product is not very homogeneous often, especially when we're talking flour and, you know, a 10-gram sample out of a 10-kilogram batch from day to day can actually vary a, a little bit. Um, so, you, you know, you... Oh, so if, say, you tested something, you mean very... Like if you tested something on day four of ha- uh, having it, it's actually just because day the sample is actually different. Like uh, when a plant grows, it not it's just like you know any organism; it's not identical everywhere. Uh, so there's variability in how you sample and where you sample from, and submit that for testing. Um, one of the things that we do is we take very large portion of that sample. So for the adult use testing, they have to submit quite large portions of material. We don't actually need all of it to run the analytical test, but we use all of it to homogenize, mix up, so we essentially make it into a fine powder, so it's very averaged out, and test that, so it gives an average number of your entire batch, as opposed to, you know, this bud may be uh, 16% THCA, um, but, you know, over here it's 32%. Does breaking it down change anything immediately? No, a mechanical kind of yeah. breakdown of it does not. And that's what it is? It's a mechanical it's a breakdown mechanical of it? It's a mechanical sort of Yeah, I was going to say, you can process. introduce any kind of temp, or you can do. do um, also, something else I've heard about flour in particular is that a drier flour will test at a higher THC level. Can you help me? Is that a myth, or is there truth to that? No, it's true. I mean, most of the time, the result is reported in percent weight. So if you dry it more, there's less water, it's that water weight is gone, so your percent weight by THC is going to go up. So they're only really kind of just cheating themselves at that point of a true score. True if that's kind of- the way that you intend your product to be received and smoked, then I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Um, right. I think it's just, yeah, it's however you want your product to, to look at the end of the day. Um, that's how you should test it. That's how you should put your label claim on it. You know, does the consumer no good if, you know, you just dry out one sample submission and send it to the to lab and get like a you know, crazy high number and then you send all the rest of your product in, you know, not completely dried like that. It's kind of a disservice to the, the end consumer. Mm-hmm. Well, is, is the percentage of THC really truly, uh, it's, it's a factor for the state more than, and the user, but, I don't know if anybody's really, I mean, years ago you'd use Leafly to get your THC percentage, and we know that that's not representative right. of what you were actually going to get. It was kind of ballparking it, right. sort of. So, and I've talked to people about whether that's important to them, and very few feel like THC level as a, as a consumer is important. So is it really because we want to make sure that people are aware um, on the THC level, especially maybe more an adult use program where they're not as familiar with the product. So right. where it comes yeah, I from. think that's, I, I think in the medical community, you have people that really find their product. They know it works for them. They're a little more concerned with the whole product rather than just the THC percentage number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but more when, into the terpenes. Yeah. I think that that's, I think starting to become a big area of focus. I think we'll see in the next few years flavonoids become this other class of compounds that we start to look at. Flavonoids? Flavonoids, yeah, like Flav. flavor. Okay. Um, they're, oh, okay. They're the other types of compounds that give flavor and uh, smell and stuff to, to, to plants in particular, you know, where there's hundreds, I don't know, probably thousands of those. Um, but, um, yeah, I, in the adult use program, I think it's important because you do have somewhat naive people. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you also want to, um, you know, protect them from. Or you want you want people to learn how to use the product too. I know for me, when I look at an edible, um, I, I ten milligrams is like my max. Like right. for me, that yeah, that's your comfort zone. You figured that lot, out. Uh, yeah, and you know, other people I know can pound like four hundred milligrams worth it. I don't know how the heck they do it. <laughs> Uh, because you wouldn't see me for probably a week. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, this information, you know, and it actually, you know, with medicine, medicine is supposed to be very consistent, right? So mm-hmm. I actually think that it is important. And kind of retract what I just said. I think going back to the idea of THC that, levels. Yeah, this is that. medicine. If that's the compound that is, that means something to you and you find that improves your health, 
um, you do want to know the amount in there because, you know, if I took 100 milligrams of Tylenol today, I don't want to get one milligram of Tylenol tomorrow yeah, right. and expect the same effect. Yeah, I mean, right. you're not going to have those drastic differences, I'm sure, but um, you still want to have some consistency in your medicine. No, you do. Yeah. Are, do either of you, are either of you users um, of cannabis? Yes? Yeah, I, I do. Um, Is that fair to say or, or no? Yep, that's fair to say. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, for me, for me, just per- checking. For me personally, I'm someone that like uh, it, it really affects. I use it sparingly. Uh-huh. Like five milligrams of a gummy is plenty for me. No, you, uh, I, having worked a storefront before, um, a lot of the people, a lot of the patients who were coming in had already had a good deal of experience. Mm-hmm. Ones who were the immediate when when stores were slow, I was uh, a pocket or a handful of patients. Very knowledgeable, though. They could come in and quiz you. Yeah. You know, they, they really wanted to know. But then as time went on and there was this familiarity from stores and, and new people were getting and older people were getting patient cards, um, there, was a, there were a lot more questions. There were a lot more answers to be needed, and there wasn't any kind of resource to give them outside of your own experience. So that 5, 10 milligram dose on edibles, yeah, that, that was go to sleep. That's we kind of winged it. We said, yeah, that's what you want before you go to bed. And that's what they wanted it for. So seemed like good, right? But we always, you know, wanted them to err on the side of caution the first time through. Cut that in half. If you don't feel anything, double it tomorrow. You're only dealing with two and a half to five to 10, hopefully. I think there's Find some, that range. I don't remember the exact statistic, but like uh, almost majority <clears throat> of the hospitalizations, um, related to cannabis or overdosing on edibles. It is, isn't you know, it? It's that delay of onset and then overdosing for sure. It is, yeah. And But yeah, beverages hit just like that, or 10, 15 minutes later. So it's kind of a yes. true... We're still learning the, that that's interesting kind of uh, space that we'd like to get into. The bioavailability, what does it... How does your product actually get into the consumer? Mm. Um, so you guys are working with caregivers. You're trying to help them not... in not only with the test results, but by going into their space, giving them kind of information that you've learned or that you can share, or do they seek it out from you, or is it something just a, a quick service that you could offer? Yeah, it, so like a uh, free, con- not a free consultation. I'm just a consultation to get in there. Is yeah, that what you do? Uh, well, we um, so every person we engage with, in, engage with, like I said, we kind of approach it from a partnership. We tell them everything we do, how we can help them. Um, they ask us, we're, we're there, I think, mostly, I think, in how we got into, like, those different areas. We're, we're here to he- listen to their issues and questions, and we're scientists. We like to find problems and find their solution. Um, so that's kind of how we got into a lot of that. And how's it working? I think it's working great. It's been great experience for us. We've learned so much. Yeah. Um, you know, getting new requests for different analytes and different technologies uh, regularly. And uh, me, I'm kind of one of the ambitious ones that's like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Let's learn how to do that. We'll get that in. We'll work on that. Implement next. it within what, uh, within what you guys are offering. Yeah, and there's, yeah. there's just there's a lack of understanding and research, and that gives us a really good opportunity to innovate and come up with those things. Yeah, we really want to push the science. If there's a way for us to better serve a cultivator to help them troubleshoot a problem, um, make their processes better, we want to be that partner. Um, I think there's a lot left to do um, in the cannabis industry, especially from the science side. There's just a lot we don't know. Oh, a lot we don't know, yeah. I think your accessibility is what uh, I think you guys are going to do really well. I think that willingness to be accessible and to want to work with them. Um, to be honest, what other lab, con- I've never heard that concept before associated with labs. So I think it's a really good move. Yeah, thank you for your, thank you for offering it that way to the community. I'm sure, with a little bit more exposure or however it is, you guys will, and the different things you're doing already, you're probably going to be jamming. Uh, you're going to think of, of upgrading just like they did. Uh, yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> more lab space. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. Uh, but you know, yeah, at the end of the day, um, uh, rising tides float all boats, right? To reuse one of those sayings. But we really. We're scientists, and myself and business partners, and why we chose to bring Dan on is we're not we're here for the long term. We're not here to make a quick buck. 
Uh, we're we're here to support people who are running businesses. Yep. We're here to do the right thing. At the end of the day, the end of the day, we are here for public safety. So that's one of the things I like to get across. We're going to help you do the best thing that you can do. We're really customer customer focused kind of centric organization. At the end of the day, it's the person that's using the product that we are protecting. Our our seal of approval goes on yep. that product, and we're going to do the right thing and make sure that that someone can look at that seal and say, I trust that this is safe. You brought something up earlier. You were talking about testing within the room, talking about mm -hmm. doing something safe. It's not required yet for, what tests are required on a medical level right now? Is it, are there any? In the medical level, no. On the medical level, there are none I think required. The, there's the new proposed rules that are coming out. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a line in there that says, you're going to label your product with the percent content of something you have to use an approved laboratory so that would be like a accredited lab like right us. that would be uh, you good. can't just you can't test your strain like you know two harvests ago a test to say that 32 percent you not you can't write that on every product from now on yeah right um, you're gonna to have to have things tested by batch i think there is legislation in the works this summer maybe um that would make testing mandatory in the medical community um, honestly, I haven't followed it terribly close. I've, a lot of clients ask about it and have had some conversations. And it sounds like actually as, as a whole, people are supportive of it. As um, a whole. I'm um, surprised when I hear the other, uh, the other argument that they are not for testing. And I don't know if they're citing it from a monetary point of view or because, because in their eyes, um, look, if I gave you two or four samples from this space, that should be enough. You, it, it, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe they feel like they're going to have to have every strain tested that's grown in a in a in a room, so it kind of minimizes. So I, I don't know. I don't know all of the legalities. Yeah, there's a lot of that. aspects that go into that conversation. Obviously, it's a, can be a, a adds to your overhead. Um, oh. Right now, like for the adult use tests, runs to you about three hundred dollars for an entire batch. Um, a batch can be up to ten kilograms, but you know, batches can be much smaller, so it has different impacts for different people. Um, right now, testing costs are pretty low. For, it is in co comparison to some other states, and I'm happy that we can like we can do that. Um, I think the other aspects of well, in I, some cases, any added cost is too much of an added for cost. for sure, so, and, and, I, and they've got to be realistic about it. it too many people, I've heard it, and, and I'm sure that you have too, that um, when they talk about their medicine and it's yeah. good and it's always been good for their patients, that's not necessarily the truth of the matter. How, how open is somebody being about that? I mean, knowledgeable enough to know about that. So I just don't know if it's there. Yeah, so, I mean, here are some of the hard facts. Um, you know, we're testing pesticides now, um, and of the people that are asking us to test, uh, you know, we're seeing up to a third of those containing some pesticides. And some of the ones like Eagle 20. Yeah. Um, I don't know where they come from. Or These are mostly people that are bringing product in and want to have it tested for their own you know, purpose. But um, Eagle 20, um, I've heard some division on, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you can speak on this as well. Both of you, I'd like to hear your opinion. It's systemic, is it not? Is it one of these that even if you were to spray it, when they're babies, when they're seedling or not seedlings, but beyond, you know, they're very immature. They're still in their solo cup size is I've heard many growers say and try to justify that that's okay to do in their veg room. Um, and I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I don't think it can be a, it's one of these that can be used in any, and it's not that it's, well, go ahead. The levels we're looking at, I wouldn't even bring a pesticide into my facility where I was growing cannabis. Uh, I wouldn't even risk it. And many of these pesticides, they've been banned by the EPA. Uh, like there was what was called the Dirty Dozen in the 70s where they were just spraying these pesticides everywhere in agriculture. Uh, they come to find out, you know, they were finding it in the water. Uh, as, in, oh, in a water source nearby? Oh, yeah, and like uh, yeah, miles right. away from the source and stuff. You know, a lot of these pesticides are very persistent in the environment. So if you spray it when they're young, there's nothing to say that it's okay when they're a mature plant later on. Yeah, I, think, I mean, years ago, I mean, they could still be in the ground places. Yep. 
Like they're they're very stable compounds. That's why they work so well at disrupting life. <laughs> oh, really? Um, so they they hang around. So one one of the things that you might have heard a term when talking about cannabis is that they're excellent bioremediators. They suck a lot of stuff up and they grow like a weed, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're if you spray a little bit of Eagle Twenty Mike, uh, Microbutanol on the on the plant at a young age, it's still going to be there. Still going to contain it um, later on. Uh, that one's um, is it, but okay. Uh, but does it become broken down enough, or does it become minute enough? No, it doesn't. Does it? We'll still see it. Yeah. Just it should never get in there. Yeah, and that one is particularly bad because um, when you heat that compound, it actually turns to cyanide gas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what gets people sick. Now there's other things. But that's one First of all, we realize that Maine is a really large state, and you know we're not exactly centrally located, being in Portland, Maine. Uh, so we are doing sample pickups. We'll go out and pick up samples for you. We have a driver that'll coordinate, and they'll also will come out on site. Uh, the Maine CDC, they and the OMP, they require, you know, a lot of information to be captured during these pickups. We'll come out and uh, we'll do an initial training. You know, we'll kind of help educate. You know, the, the I's you need to dot, the T's you need to cross before you can send your sample off to get tested. So we have a whole um, agenda for that. We'll come on site and we'll walk through it with, with uh, you know, the client and help them, help set them up for success. So, taking away the fear of the whole, uh, yeah. or, or well, the it's the documentation and also the <clears throat> correct way to sample and prepare your sample for testing so it, you know, passes as it should. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll add some other variable in there. And, I mean, they're trying to run a business and time is money. Um, and, you know, it's not quick to resolve these problems when they get when they come up. Um, you know, OMP doesn't necessarily move fast. Um, metric is a system that everybody's going to be forced to interact with and use. And when there's a problem with metric, uh, you know, as simple as just a, a number being recorded wrong. And sometimes you got to wait two or three days for that to be um, uh, resolved. And that's – nobody wants to wait an extra two or three days. So uh, we try to, you know, go up – yeah, train them up front so that we can get avoid those problems down the line. Um, do you have anything you want to add to that, Chris? And one of the, I think, pains of metric is getting the information in and out of it, uh, properly ordering and being compliant with all the different pieces of data we need to capture. Uh, we are launching a metric integration, so you'll come into our system online and scan your metric tag, and it kind of sucks some information out of metric puts it into like the order form, knows what you need to order and all your like weights and, and temperatures and things. So you enter a few keys and hit send, get a printout, you get your metric manifest, put them together and we're ready to go. We're trying to take a lot of the headache out of it. And you're uh, bringing one of the only seemingly good lights to, to the metric system and how you're using it. Yeah, trying to limit our uh, interaction. With I them. haven't heard many good things about it from people, but did you use metric code? And when you were in Colorado, was yeah. it the metric system or was it green? It wasn't green bits. No, it was the metric system. It was, and it was uh, when the, you know, I worked in Colorado during the time where the metric system was kind of born. Um, so it was even worse at a time, if you can believe that. And uh, so I have a lot of experience with it. I know it's not easy. I know it can be confusing and it's one extra step that, you know, a lot of people don't want to take. Um, I'm really excited that Chris has figured out a way to integrate um, our, our system with it. It really is, it takes a lot of the headache out of the whole process. It's nice. You're able to link up with other people's metric systems, obviously given an acceptance to be able to share information. Or Yeah, so book. when actually it's all on, on their end. They have a way to log into our system, and they can drop something called their API key in, and it allows them to connect and talk to metric. Hmm. So would there be a reason to... You're always dealing with, uh, say, a cultivar or a caregiver or or extractor as well. There is any reason to work with stores? Sometimes a store might want to do their own non-mandatory R&D testing. Maybe they want to confirm. Maybe they, you know, have a reason to test. Um, Particular done, products that. that they're carrying? Yeah, I mean, we, we test products for people, just a regular consumer, uh, someone that, you know, wanted to verify, or maybe they, uh, consumer, maybe they did something to the product back at home themselves. Um, so there's a wide variety of uh, people that we test for, but yeah, mostly cultivators and manufacturers, right? The 
finished product batches? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, um, the most common thing I see when we test for a store is people are concerned about the shelf life stability of the product. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell how long it's been there, and it easily could have changed over time, especially if you're talking about food. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of food comes with, uh, you buy it at the grocery store and it says uh, it has a use-by date. Uh, I don't think you find that enough on cannabis on the retail edibles. products. So. I've had a number of people concerned about that, bring it in and um, ask me to test it for you know, some contaminants that they might be concerned about. You know, they're wondering why it looks the way it does. Uh, it doesn't look like the picture on the label, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think that's legitimate. Um, we also have a number of clients that actually care a lot about what their product's going to be after it goes to the shelf. So we actually do do shelf life study in the lab for um, people that ask for it. Have uh, I, I thought about something while you were talking there, and I um, don't mean it to be a, a slightly off topic, but you were talking about things that you're testing and going into organic growers. Is there something I, I think collectively they always not collectively? This is I don't mean to broad scope, broad brush stroke it, but they feel as though the tests are going to take into some of their feeding methods or or. Um, just what the whole medium is like, that it, it will cause them to fail or, or it might heighten some numbers in different categories. Had, have you heard? I thought through um, other states I had heard that talked about and some of the organic growers around here were concerned about it as well or, or deemed. I have not gotten that feedback yet. No, it doesn't come up? or it's no, not I haven't like that. seen a major difference between people who grow organically and not organically. Yeah. Um, now I haven't intentionally sought out that data, um, so sure. you know, it's just something I'm not familiar with. Most of the things we're looking for are things that shouldn't be there, period. Um, so if, if they're there, like from the safety aspect of what we test for, if they're there, whether it was done organically or grown not organically, it's still, you know, I haven't seen the organic growth. Maybe you're talking sometimes like beneficials and using some of those. Some of them are bacteria. Mm-hmm. Some of them are bugs and they might. Um, yes. I guess, right. there's, I guess there is a little bit of now if we're talking about that side of things. More like of a the, living soil. or they, Yeah, there's they call sometimes it some risk, go-to. I guess, associated with that. But as long as you keep those areas, the soil separate from the plant and there's not contamination, things aren't moving. I, I haven't seen an issue really there. Okay. Um, on our medical program, there's no testing. On our adult use program, what are we testing for? So the required test right now, water activity, moisture content. So those two tests determine if your plant or material is suitable for microbial growth. So it goes into the stability of its, um, of, of its shelf life, really. Um, uh, microbials, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure the product is clean. Um, Potency, so cannabinoid profile. And that's required. It's required. Um, and am I missing anything else? Filth and form materials. Filth and form material. Uh, homogeneity. <clears throat> um, a requirement for concentrate matrices, but not for flour. Um, and all homogeneity is is just, you know, you take different samples from different places uh, of your concentrate and make sure that the numbers are close enough to each other so that you can't grab from one part of your batch and it's completely different from the other side of your batch, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, one of the tests that the OMP is going to roll out next is heavy metals. Um, that's one of those tests where, you know, I've gotten feedback from clients before where they're like, how did we possibly fail for uh, heavy metals? And it kind of ties into what Chris was talking about earlier where, um, you know, cannabis is an excellent bioremediator. It's if it's if you have these heavy metals in your soil, if they're in your water that you're using to water the plant, it's going to suck it up and it's going to you know incorporate that into its own living tissue. That's most more often than not. That's why people fail for that requirement. So I mean, it might be prudent for some of these people that are in adult use to you know try to do a, a spot check, see where they're at. Um, better to kind of get a, a glimpse of where you stand now before they roll that test out and make it required so that you're not caught off guard you know you've already set forth on a, a three-month growth cycle and you have this 10 kilogram batch that's you can't do anything with yeah um, so i'd encourage people to kind of try to get ahead of that they don't allow remediation for two tests heavy metals i, 
I think, I think it's just a two, heavy metals and pesticides. So if you fail a compliance test for that, um, you're, you have to destroy your product. Um, there is a tool kit. There is some tool in your kit you can use, which uh, is R&D testing, where you submit something not for compliance testing, and only you get the results for it. And you can, like Dan is saying, start testing now, know where you're at, uh, so you can better plan for the future. Mm. Um, and you know those tests coming online. Um, Back in January, there were only two uh, two labs in Maine that um, adult use businesses could use. Correct? Are there are there more than that now? There's only the two of us. Only the two of you right now. I think there's a few more coming online. Um, one of the things I mean, we have. What's interesting is we have all of our tests up and running. So. The, the one that Dan mentioned, heavy metals, is not yet active. It will be soon. The other two are residual solvents and pesticides. Quite arguably, they're the kind of two most dangerous classes of uh, compounds that we really do need to make sure these products don't have are in tested it. for. We're ready yeah. to test for them. We have actually, the, based on the size of the adult use market right now, which is kind of small, we actually have the capacity to do that, all that testing. Uh, so we're just waiting on the OMP to really put that plan into gear and you know make main a... How come you think it's that those those are faltered uh, or not been addressed uh, in the front end of things? Did it just not? Um, the availability from the labs, I guess. Yeah. Uh, what was communicated as being feasible and um, in 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 place? Um, we were we put a lot of effort into our startup, the being a full service laboratory, and yep. Um, one of the things we wanted to do was be ready for all that and. And we're, we're testing, the, we're using those assays, we're testing because we have a lot of people in the medical community and even in the adult use community that still want to know and provide that information. Um, but yeah, from my perspective, I think pesticides and residual solvents is, are actually the two tests that um, are most important to get online. And it's not like you, you don't have every account from adult use you're going to have who comes to you, who, who has to submit to you? But has that increased to like? Is, yeah, it's been that's continually very been steady increasing, has month it? over month. Um, for a little over a month now. A month over month. Oh, month over month. Okay, yeah, growth. yeah, and it correlates to the adult use licenses starting up. Um, a lot of them, I think, are waiting and starting that transition. I think there was a news article which I was happy to see. It's it something like thirty stores are opening in Portland mm. um, over the next several months. Which, yeah. um, you know, I think. In January and February, it was like around two and a half million dollars in um, adult use sales. Oh wow! And for both months, so there wasn't much of a growth there, but I think we're seeing kind of the preemptive. Kind of January, February. I started it was in May of 2020 was that kind of uh, where you had focused am, am I right on that or is that just sort of when I started to see 
signs of your business online? Yeah, so social media we were probably here about a year before getting our plans together, um, finding a location and starting the process of permitting and all that. Um, it was about May of 2020 when we finished our build out. We started to have instruments uh, come into the facility and we started all of our validation and startup plans. Um, and then it's the end of October, uh, early November, we tested our first uh, medical samples. In October. Oh, okay. So it was, was it strictly or straight for the adult use program or, or it's open to all programs? Is it not the, the analytics lab? Yeah. So um, exactly. So we started in medical because there's honestly no regulation right now around um, how to license for a testing lab um, other than Portland required us to get one. And then it was in January. Um, we actually got licensed by the state for the adult use program. We started oh, okay. testing adult use. Yeah. Oh, okay. Was that more they were just getting through like paperwork or it made sense that's where your company was? Yeah, uh, so it's a little bit of both. Um, there are certain types of validation and data we have to produce to show our methods are accurate. They uh, take time to review that, and then there's time for the permitting, again, specific to the adult use program, which I'm sure a lot of people have had, gone through. Have um, like the, the um, I suppose, the lines or, or the uh, recommended... Um, acceptance of what is a, is a level of, say, pesticide within or mold within? Uh, and I don't want to get into it too much uh, directly into those categories yet, but does the data come from, say, like uh, past states like Colorado or, or California, or, or do they exist? Does it come from Canada? Because Canada has been fairly, uh, has had some large venture businesses investing in into what they're doing in cannabis. Is that where the testing's coming from? So or, or the numbers? So you're essentially asking the regulations, the limits, what determines a pass or fail. Yeah, right. Who who the heck came up with that? Who came limit? up with that? And yeah, so um, question is, we don't have complete clarity on kind of exactly how the, really it's the OMP and a subsection of Maine CDC mm-hmm. um, that com- wrote those rules and regulations. Uh, we do know that they looked at other states and regulations and, you know, took a lot of data into consideration to come up with those, uh, some basic kind of food and beverage yep. uh, laboratories out there that, uh, um, you know, they have, they have limits that some of that stuff was applied. Um, as a whole, um, there's so not a lot. So they've searched it out. They, they, yeah, they've searched it out. Therapy. And the problem, though, across the board in cannabis right now and cannabis testing is, there's not been a lot of research done, so we don't truly know what different levels of chemicals, microbes, and whatnot, uh, based on the way that you uh, administer. So whether you're inhaling, smoking versus eating, and or a topical, um, kind of what those levels need to be. So I think they're fairly conservative. Uh, when we come, we talk about we could talk about pesticides eventually, but mm-hmm. um, the limits there are really ambiguous right now. It's actually a problem. They basically say there are. There's no tolerance. You can't detect any pesticides. But analytically, from a scientific perspective, determining zero is, well, nearly impossible. Impossible. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, Dan, you want to, you came from, uh, you saw some things in Colorado, Mass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah, I want to give a little bit of background first, if you could, um, and your experience in Colorado and such, sure. and what brought you here. So, yeah, I'm a little uniquely positioned to, in the science side of things in the cannabis industry, I have experience in Colorado, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Pennsylvania. So I've uh, started up labs in all three of those states. And the regulations vary from state to state wildly. So, you know, none of those experiences have been the same. Um, I will give Maine a lot of credit. It seems like they put a lot of thought into the regulations that they did implement. It's not to say that there's not more work to do. Sure. When you when you say uh, you feel like they put some work into it, more in the analytics department in in the laboratory or as a program itself. I would say as a program itself. So, for example, um, the microbiology limits they referenced uh, USP twenty twenty two, and USP stands for United States Pharmacopeia, um, and that's you know regulations set forth by the federal government that industries across the country have leaned on to serve public health and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so they referenced that. They leveraged methods. They leveraged uh, limits from that. And I think that that's very prudent and, and wise of them. You know, they, they're looking to 
play it safe until they get enough data to, you know, maybe change those thresholds. I don't know if that's in mind for them, but I will give them credit. They, they went out and sought, you know, valid data to try to set thresholds in an industry that has been very much a black box yeah. from a scientific perspective. You bring up like thresholds. It's going to be a while before thresholds are actually established to for where, where it could be seen across. Would that be, would that be true? I mean, the more data we can, that's compiled, is that basically the best way to, to maybe accurately describe what a threshold might, might or should be going forward? I think we'll eventually see that some of it's kind of difficult. So, I mean, there's not a whole lot of uh, toxicology data surrounding uh, pesticides being smoked and inhaled, for example. Um, you normally find that, you'd think, in tobacco. But I think that there's been heavy lobbying in that industry mm -hmm. where, you know, they don't have uh, as many regulations they need to abide by. Right. Um, so a lot of that data is missing right now, and I think it's going to take studies. I think it's going to take federal legalization until we see some of those thresholds. So what's by missing the is the federal amount of data. Yeah. Is that what's missing the federal um, um, legalization? That's when more R and D might go into it. I don't. Or think funding. That's what's holding it back. I think that that's what will expedite it significantly. Yeah. Um, so there's like the phenomena of standardization across an industry and laboratories in other industries are notoriously standardized. There's regulations that aren't within a, the borders of a state, but permeate, you know, nationally and, you know, um, across countries. And to get those recommendations that you want, you know, a, a whole industry to abide by, there has yeah. to be a lot of data, a lot of hard evidence so there has to be a lot of funding and studies that are conducted, and you're actually going to need some like clinical studies, multi-million dollar animal toxicology studies, for instance, to be done to get actually a number that everyone's going to say, yes, I agree to. We're a long way off from that. Federal legalization will open the door to some of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think getting back to your question, you know, what did Maine do? How did they do it? They took a conservative approach. And I have to say that from our perspective, so there are two rules in the adult use program, the chapter one rule, which is everyone has to follow. And then there's a chapter five rule. We, we as testing lab have our own technical rule that we need to follow. It talks more to the science aspect of what we do. And um, I have to say that they have been very open um, with our, to receiving our comments, mm -hmm. to reacting to those comments. There have been some technical limitations um, there are technical limitations that their rule uh, didn't comprehend or, um, or anticipate, and they were quick to react to that. Um, so th I think the, we can't ask them to be perfect right now, um, but what we can ask them is to listen and take our feedback. Uh, they've been good in the sense that they've had an open line of communication with you yeah, about sure. directing you, at least giving you some sort of guidance, and you're kind of forming it yourself uh, or within... Yeah, but from yeah, our perspective and our experience, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. What's that? Um, what's that experience been like now? I mean, I mean, I know that you got stalled out last year, and uh, and and that happened. I mean, I don't know how often we're going to have to prepare in that sense or that way about what the what happens in the market. Um, right. But but it certainly was a big boom for the current medical program, a chance to get their legs under themselves a little bit more. And investing back into their into their what was going to take them to the next level, whatever that level might be. Um, our larger, our who who are the clientele that are seeking out testing from you guys? Uh, without being specific about who they are, yeah, sure. but a, in in a sense, a generalized. And I ask this because I had to. We we had a podcast with Sensible, which was a courier service for a little while for, I forget the name of the lab. They were out of mass, I believe, but I, I can't remember. They had a, a main chapter, but they were really located out of mass. That's oh, where the testing maybe. would go. Yeah, I believe that's who it was. So she, um, she said that it was a lot of smaller entity caregivers who just wanted to know about their product, like what it was. Right. So um, let me, back up and just kind of give you an idea of the breadth of testing that we do and okay. talk about like who is yeah, yeah, who's sure. using it. So 
kind of everyone obviously potency and cannabinoid profile and our assay is actually truly a profile we look up to look at up to 19 different cannabinoids so a lot of the minor cannabinoids that people might be interested in uh, interested in show up there how many uh this was one of my questions how many cabinet uh, cannabinoids are there well there's, there's over a hundred over a hundred yeah that you know of there's probably even more than that and these are these 19 per se are highlighted for 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 what we know about them or or they're they're pretty much more the mainstream ones that have been studied and discussed and actually have a reference standard it's something we use to calibrate instruments available to us mm-hmm. um but yeah there's a good you know 70 80 that we aren't looking at that as the more research is done, they might become more important to, to the end consumer and we'll start looking for them. Yeah. Okay. I didn't mean to take you off on yeah, the cannabinoids, no but I had to ask, um, I, I thought there were hundreds, but I wasn't sure like what characteristics or what we're looking for that would determine why we would watch it or why we'd even account for it. Yeah, it's really the information that someone else publishes and says, you know, this one can be used for X, Y, and Z or mm-hmm. um, creates public interest in it. And, you know, it makes sense for us to start looking for it. Is our cannabinoids, are they, how would you best describe them like to somebody for, for what their purpose is? Like what, what, like I know like you have seasonings in a, in a kitchen yeah. and cannabinoids for, for cannabis or hemp. How's, why, why do, um, why do people want to know or need to know how these differentiate, like what qualities or what, what comes of it? So I'll take the first part of this and maybe sure. then you want to elaborate on. I it's mean, complex and I don't know where that question it, comes from, but it's, I it want to explore a it a question. I mean, from the aspect of why do we study them? Why do we have different cannabinoids and why are we interested in the different ones and how they affect us? We have something called the endocannabinoid system mm-hmm. that is a receptor system in our body. Um, that we make our own um, chemicals that interact with them, anatomide and some of these others that um, modulate inflammatory responses, um, uh, other health conditions that, you know, we now realize that these cannabinoids interact with those systems to some extent in some way. Um, Learning about how they interact with the system, which ones specifically do and don't, you can potentially, you know, modulate that system. So, I think everyone knows there's actually an approved form of cannabis called Epidiolex, CBD, actually treats uh, Lennox Gastaut and Dravet syndrome. They're epileptic syndromes in uh, uh, in, in infants and early childhood. Children, toddlers, um, yeah. So, you know, one of the first really effective treatments. <clears throat> so learning a little bit about that. And um, it's that's also one of those scenarios where we don't exactly know how it works, but we know it does work and it's proven safe. Mm-hmm. So it's a win-win there, uh, but yeah, a lot, a lot to learn. Is it true that the endocannabinoid uh, system is only o- opened up through THC or CBD type of? Product? So our body uses it itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we produce our own chemicals to interact with it. It happens. It just so happens to be, in a kind of simplistic term here, um, that these chemicals, cannabinoids produced by a plant, also interact with those receptors in our body and can affect that system in some, in some way, somehow. Okay. All right. But it, it is only awakened by the, but, or, or is it a system that's already active before Yep. in our um, body? What it, stimulates it outside of say cannabis or, or it, it, it's or, really a homeostasis mechanism. It's always in um, use. Mm-hmm. It keeps us, our body at equilibrium. What, hap- what tends to happen for people, let's talk about inflammation. It's probably the easiest one to understand. Okay, sure. The system can be upregulated or downregulated and tells your body to inflame and you know, release a lot of um, cytokines or um, uh, other chemicals that cause like visible inflammation or, or pain. And the, the, and the cannabinoids, the entry of those can actually help lower the um, infiltration of, that, of that, uh, those immune cells and, and reduce the inflammation. Um, oh, so, so it does happen so on a cellular level. It does. It okay. absolutely does. It's uh, you. I guess maybe the easiest way to understand it is that your body itself loses its ability to regulate that system to some degree, and you can modulate or change the way that that system is um, working in your body with cannabinoids and get it back on track. 
amazing. So we're we're still learning. We're so still much learning about a lot, it. aren't we? Yeah. yeah. That, were there things that you wanted to say? I'll add to that a little bit, um, please. You know, for example, it's, Chris was talking a little bit about inflammation. Uh, CBD doesn't only interact with the endocannabinoid system; it actually interacts with you know um, immuno immunological processes in your body. So, I mean, it can interact with more than just the receptors in our endocannabinoid system, and that's still all being um, studied research. It's not as well understood as it should be. Mm. Um, so there's a lot more to learn. And then just from all these other cannabinoids that we don't know about, <clears throat> for example, there's CBDP and THCP that were recently discovered. And there's historically, or like um, before then, it was always like perceived that the longer uh, this chain, this hydrocarbon chain you have on the end of these cannabinoids, the more potent it is. Well, CBDP and C THCP have a seven they have a seven carbon chain at the end there. So they're like, this is great. It's going to get people even higher. turns out it binds so well with the receptor that it actually can cause like adverse effects in the body. So, oh, no way. I mean, there's even cannabinoids out there that aren't necessarily good for public health and safety, perhaps. Um, so there's a lot to learn. Have you heard of kind of get off track here, but this is an interesting, like kind of piece of history. Sure. Do you, have you heard of spice K2 spice? There are these illicit drugs that you've seen awful news stories on, people like kind of doing some crazy things. So those are actually called synthetic cannabinoids. Okay. The yep. um, pharmaceutical industry was trying, they, they identified this system years ago, and they started in the lab making chemicals that reacted with that same system. But they produced these synthetic cannabinoids that are actually several hundred to thousands to several hundred thousands times more potent than THC. Ooh. And uh, there's a real problem. DEA, DEA can't regulate them. They come from clandestine locations. And they 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 fiddle with the molecular structure and mix it into uh, street drugs to create like some crazy crazy effect. And people people die from it. It's actually a serious problem. But wow, that's kind of on the outside of what we're looking. at. We're looking at the natural cannabinoids, and these are right. safe compounds from a. Um, aspect of how we know to use them are those still today. on the market is synthetic uh i think i heard it termed as synthetic marijuana before but yes, we're kidding that, well they're but, not supposed to be let's put it that way they're um, not supposed to be yeah and so they haven't illicit, really kind of changed they're really it. illegal illicit drugs hmm. did that did you say that came from the within the government like so the testing were, or, or were, not the government research but, research that was yeah, done research labs. um and <clears throat> i mean going back into the early but it made life. it into pharmaceuticals yeah yeah hmm one of those things, yeah, you can't put just a concoction together in, with what you think it's going to be, right. what it should be. Um, so we were talking about, kind of sidetracked us, but we were talking about all the different types of tests that we do, yep. right? So we got um, the cannabinoids, right? We've got heavy metals. Uh, those are toxic metals that you shouldn't ingest. We've got pesticides. Uh, we test for terpenes, so it's another kind of profiling test look at like 23 of those or so mm -hmm. 23 um and uh you know that goes to hand in hand with the cannabinoids often kind of describing a strain uh we obviously look for all the different microbial contaminants yeast and molds and bacteria um we also look at residual solvents so after extracting say with a hydrocarbon or going through a manufacturing process you want to yep. make sure that Nothing from your process is left behind that would make it unsafe. Is it, um, what's the chemical that they wash it? They do like a rinse in those. Um, is it all, an all ethyl, uh, ethanol or alcohol based? It's typically ethanol. Ethanol? Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, why would something um, like, say, um, that doesn't want to break down at a high temp or a temp that's normally used? Well, I'm 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 kind of getting off topic here, but just out of curiosity, why would it show up in say a cultivation space? Is it something that's sprayed? Is it something that doesn't tend to break down uh, from a pesticide point of view, or or maybe not even a pesticide? Maybe it's something within the grow, just happen to make it into its medium to its soil. Is, do situations like that come up, or or you come across that from a lab end? <clears throat> um, are you speaking to any contaminant or residual solvents? Residual solvents more. Typically, uh, residual solvents, we only find those in concentrate type of matrices. So they're, um, they're using butane or some other solvent to concentrate the cannabinoids down. 
I would be surprised if we found any sort of residual solvents on like a, a bud mm-hmm. or a flower. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to say that maybe somebody hasn't tried. <laughs> to no, do that. right. Um, so we really haven't seen, we haven't found solvents on any other matrices very often, uh, aside from concentrates. It usually has to come from some sort of application. So one of the things is like you don't know what you don't know. So if you're applying something that you think is, you know, the label says it only contains X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you test it, you actually don't know if you could potentially be introducing some other small, small amount of like one of these other toxic chemicals, residual solvents or pesticides, right? Mm. Um, one of the things that I think people may have a hard time comprehending is just what like a part per billion, part per trillion even is that we're looking at. I mean, we're looking at things that are almost, they're, they're trace levels. It's super, super low. So um, it can be it can be uh, daunting to tell someone that you know your product tested for pesticides, but they've never even used pesticides in or around their facility. But you know, then they go back and do research. They found out that ten years ago someone had you know uh, a pesticide use in their in their um, building, in that same space and that shows up. Yep. Or yeah. even building a building a there's construction going on next door, and somehow that gets into your Air, air system and lands on your plants. The, the levels are so low, it like pushes the capabilities of modern or commercially available scientific instruments that we even have the option to put in house. So like, I still remember a, a, a lab I worked at previously, we had this contamination we couldn't track down and, and you know, our pesticides testing was at a standstill. Uh, finally figured out somebody had just sprayed pesticides, like the town came and just sprayed spe- pesticides outside of our facility and it just, through our whole entire laboratory for a loop. Uh, so I still remember my lab director coming out, like waving his hands in the air, yelling at the town to not spray pesticides outside our lab. That's all it took. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. so you've got to think about the location of it, where you are and how that can affect the oh, yeah. air. It's all about the airflow, isn't it? Yeah, our, our whole, we're like kind of like a clean box. We have filtered air and um, certain types of air handling to deal with that. If you're going to create such a sterile environment as stay as sterile as you possibly can, I mean, you need to invest in that type of that type of air. Should cultivators who are indoor also be investing in air filtration systems like that to that degree? Oh, absolutely. What about the ones who are? No, what about the ones who aren't? It's an AC unit. It's a wall-mounted unit. It's uh, maybe something a little bit like. Are they just opening themselves up to what type of issues are more common with bad airflow or, or un, you know, unfiltered airflow? Because there could be powdery mildew out in a field or trees outside and that's going to come in, is it not? Yeah, I think you hit like the main thing there is like mold can easily travel through the air and like mm-hmm. plants powdery mildew is obviously a really large problem in uh, Maine. Um, pesticides, uh, you need like a uh, you know, carbon filter time. Yeah, there's like a lot of things that can go wrong with pesticide contamination. That one's hard to avoid. Um, I think it's going to be different for everybody, um, depending where you are, uh, what you're trying to do. And it's all about the amount of risk you want to take. Um, mm. It's a that, very, that's a pretty dynamic. That also actually, I think, leads into like, the other two types of testing that we do. And we're working on one of them. The other one we we're already doing is. We help with facility testing, so we'll go into a facility, we'll swab it, and look at like maybe contaminant areas that are potentially contaminated. Look at like your AC units and tell you whether like they need to be potentially cleaned or they're a source of uh, potential. Oh, so risk. you're able to go on site and do evaluation, right? Take air samples. air quality air quality samples and that type of thing. Help give give the person some information on um, how to combat those issues. Um, we like to. We're more of a partnership sort of uh, organization where we like to learn your operation, figure out how we can best uh, provide you information and data to empower like your own decisions. Mm. Um, you know, we're we're very much you know supposed to be that unbiased and kind of so. But you've become uh, a resource now, and added uh, in in the community and in the involved. You're offering services to be able to help better somebody who's the. Give them an overall look. Yep. Tell one, them how. One thing Dan's working on now is a assay for nutrient analysis. So 
this would be like you would take a, I'll let Dan explain it. Um, well, so there's a essential nutrients. The plant has, uh, you know, like phosphorus, carbon, nitrogen. Um, and there's enough data out there to tell you if your plant is nutrient deficient in one of these nutrients or another. Um, so we're going to get an assay online to kind of help cultivars, uh, look at their plant profile, their, their nutrients, uh, content and kind of get a sense of, you know, maybe we need to add more uh, nitrogen. Maybe we need to switch fertilizers. We, we need to look at our nutrients we're adding to our plant to get a better yield. Um, we're really excited to get that on. Uh, I think Chris kind of hinted at it earlier. We don't want to like, we don't want to be the lab that gives you a result and you walk out the door and that's the end of it. We very much want to be a partner. We want to like help people work through problems. We want to learn from them. We want to help them learn from us. Yeah, the more data um, you can get and the more people you can work with, the more yeah. efficient you become in, in your evaluations too, it's right? It's about being proactive rather than reactive in a business, right? Mm -hmm. Let's you to spend your resources more wisely. Is it a little bit more, so there's almost always a level of disbelief in a, in a sense if they're, they like you were explaining earlier, you know, they don't, don't use any pesticides. They weren't using any of these things, and you found the cause of it, or, or, you know, it was about the error or, or what was going on before. How often are answers? What are the most obvious answers that you found? Like even like with, for instance, like soil. Mm -hmm. Can you just go into a place and see how they're actually taking care of the the flow? within whether it's buckets or some different manufactured, um, you know, set where it, it could be a whole table full of soil. And so you see different types of, you know, it, it could cause different issues in that environment. It's just by the container, just by what they're using for medium. I've always wondered about Coco Quar. I mean, I think that brings on a lot of issues, does it not? Coco Quire, in my experience, has led to more issues uh, than solutions. Uh, it's mostly critters, is it not? Or do you want to talk about what it? What? Yeah, and uh, big problems with mold. You know, it's just packed, dense, full of nutrients. That and then you know what you do with the Coco Quire is you put it in water and you grow a plant. Uh, you know, mold loves water, yeah. so it's just a medium. It's just a breeding ground for for mold. And as soon as you have that in your soil, it's going to make spores and it's going to travel to your plant. Um, and we go test in the lab while well, you're going to hit for yeast and mold, most likely. Mm. Uh, so we have seen pe people in the past, I've seen them move away from Coco Choir um, for that exact reason. Uh, and then you hit on it perfectly. The critters are another problem. They are. And, are and there's so much. It's just a comp. I mean, there's not to say that people can't use it and use it very successfully. Well, I've um, seen like um, when they kind of make their own soil out of it, where they'll add a little mm. bit more perlite or then add some other soils. And I didn't know if that changed it enough. Yeah, I mean, um, it, to work away from it, but I, I still got to believe from what I've seen when it's just cocoa car to those, there's still issues, gnats or whatever right. are, you know, it are going to be around and more, more prevalent. Yep, for sure. For yeah. one of the things that I've ever, that I've noticed. I'm sorry, you were. No, yeah, person? I was just going to say, you know, it's a, it also is like how the person is operating with that medium, um, how they control that. I mean, we've, done actually some tests for people looking at those and pretty hot for mold i think there was an another situation where we tested and it was clean mm -hmm. so you know they had maybe a different procedure different way of handling it that different source right this is a raw material sourcing knowing that your raw materials are you have clean inputs so you can expect the output to be clean if you do everything in your procedure correct there's I think like um, the older school uh, growers always understood certain elements of it that would allow them to to grow in in a different type of space. I don't know if they figured out airflow or stuff, or I don't know if it's just a lot has to do with soil, um, their soil or their medium, whatever they're using. Um, it could be their nutrient line, it could be their foliar, whatever it is, it's 20, 25 years of understanding it or like looking at that. I do enough cultivators is there enough experience within the, i i mean there's there, there's probably that education that needs to come along too does it not because i i feel like there's a lot of people who are maybe two three years into it and having grown for two three years it was you don't learn a lot as much as you would 
know, five, 10, 15 years into it. Yeah. Experience obviously in anything that you do gives you an edge um, mm-hmm. for those that are experienced and maybe not testing that much versus, you know, the new guys that are getting started out. Um, testing actually becomes even more important, I think, for those folks uh, because it is information data that you can use, um, like the nutrient analysis testing that will launch soon. You know, that gives you an opportunity to see a deficiency, react to it before the plan is, you know, yellow and dying or has, you know, some issue associated with it. Um, you can catch that early and make your adjustments. You can learn. It's obviously tons of information out there and cultivating now. Um, I sort of think people are adapting a little quicker, mm-hmm. but um, if there's, you know, I, and I'm not a cultivator, right. but I just know how our data can like, you know, help, help people operate better. 